Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. and modes episode 37 hi folks well we lost another great one most would agree one of the greatest some would even say the greatest of all time of course i'm talking about jeff beck who left us on january 10th and if there is a place over the rainbow jeff is there right now So it's now been a few weeks since we lost Jeff. It's still hard to believe. And uh, I wasn't sure how I would feel 
doing this episode compared to how I felt in the immediate aftermath of Jeff Beck's passing. Uh, I was pretty much an emotional wreck, as many guitar players were, many other musicians, listeners, and just appreciators of Jeff Beck. Uh, It hit really hard. It was completely unexpected. really came out of nowhere, even more so than Van Halen. Now, of course, with Eddie, it was a shock. Nobody knew how sick he was, but we did know that he'd been to the hospital. There'd been health scares. He hadn't toured in a number of years. Still, the biggest fear was that there would be some form of retirement. Maybe he'd stop touring. Nobody expected him to pass away. But with Jeff, it's very different because he was touring right up until before the holidays. I think his final show was in November, what turned out to be his final show. There were more dates on the books. And by all accounts, he was sounding as good as ever, which isn't a surprise. That's uh, something you could always count on with Jeff Beck. He was always as good as he'd ever been and improving at all times. And the word was he looked and felt great. Despite being close to 80, you know, he's one of these ageless wonders. So it has been a few weeks, and as the expressions go, life goes on, the world keeps turning, etc., etc. But uh, jumping in, hearing that short clip at the beginning of the episode, just a snippet of uh, the melody from Somewhere Over the Rainbow, played by Jeff Beck, uh, the emotion comes flooding back. It is not easy. But we're going to do this. We're going to do this together. And uh, we have some help. Uh, Several folks have chosen to join us for this episode. And the lineup is pretty stacked, if I may say. More importantly, you're going to find out things about Jeff that you had no idea about. I had no idea. And it's all wonderful. I mean, he just sounds like an incredible person. I'm so bummed I never got to meet him. I'm glad I did get to see him once in 2009. Oh, I should mention in the immediate aftermath of his passing, I went down this rabbit hole of listening, researching, and ended up writing an essay on Substack that's nearly 4,000 words. Yes, it's long, but there's a lot to talk about. It was very well received. I'm grateful for all the comments I've gotten on it. Um, I could have just read that essay for this episode and played little clips, and it would have been a good episode. (laughs) But as it turned out, uh, we got these uh, incredibly impressive folks joining us. And uh, I just encourage you to read the essay. I'll probably read from parts of it. But in the meantime, uh, we have our guests coming up. So together, all of us are going to pay tribute to the one and only Jeff Beck. All right, so both of these quick snippets you've heard so far are from a release that came out not too long ago, 2010, called Emotion and Commotion. And some of the tracks feature an orchestra. And obviously that was the operatic piece, uh, Nessun Dorma. And earlier, Over the Rainbow, which I think was fitting to kick things off because that was a tune Jeff Beck obviously would have grown up hearing. And it was also a signature tune by another guitarist, Les Paul, who was a huge influence on Jeff and eventually a friend. Now, Jeff Beck and Les Paul had a lot in common in addition to just being great guitar players. Both were incredibly innovative and mechanically minded, as well as being 
being musically gifted. In the case of Les Paul, the uh, innovations manifested themselves in the form of recording studio technology, sound effects, the development of new musical instruments, etc. In the case of Jeff Beck, uh, his mechanical side tended to be less directly connected to music. Jeff Beck never felt the need for a guitar called the Jeff Beck, the way there was the Les Paul designed for mass production, or even an individual instrument like Brian May's Red Special or Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein. Now, this is not to say that Jeff Beck didn't have a big impact on musical equipment. After all, the sound in a solid body guitar is transmitted with the electronics, what's called a pickup. And a guitar such as the Les Paul has uh, what's called a humbucker pickup. And for the last several decades, the industry standard in solid body guitar pickups, particularly Les Pauls, has been a pickup built by Seymour Duncan called the JB. Of course, that stands for Jeff Beck and was designed by Jeff Beck with Seymour Duncan. There's also a Jeff Beck signature Stratocaster, which contains some of Jeff's modifications, such as the hardware, particularly the tremolo bar. Yet these are exceptions. For the most part, Jeff's mechanical side was not focused on music. Instead, the main center of attention was something else, something that could be considered a cultural component to the music and also an escape from it. That's right, hot rods. Now, there's a great documentary on Jeff that came out in 2018. Thank goodness they made this film. It serves as a fitting tribute and a great retrospective on his career and his hobby. And in it, he talks about being taken to the cinema as a young child by his grandmother, uh, what he describes as a posh film. Yet it turned out to be a double feature, and the opening film was a B-movie uh, called Hot Rod Gang. And uh, his grandmother tried to pull him out of the theater because it had the word gang in it. She thought it wasn't suitable. Yet uh, he clung to the seats and was mesmerized. And it changed his life. And uh, it's kind of a silly film. They show a clip of it, and it's these hot rods racing. And they're clearly right outside the gates of the studios in Burbank and North Hollywood and it pretty much looks the same, except it's the 1950s, it's in black and white, and some of the cars on the street look different. Otherwise, uh, it's very recognizable. And there was a real irony to Jeff Beck's automotive side. I don't know if contradiction is too strong a word, but it's certainly ironic because um, he was so removed from how we think of car culture. For example, you know, think of those calendars with dragsters and stock cars and hot rods with scantily clad sexualized images of women on top of them, much like Tawny Katane in the White Snake video. <laughs> and the car show with an atmosphere feeling, you know, kind of similar to a sports bar, very male and full of machismo. That's not Jeff. He sort of removed the overly macho quality of rock and roll, having uh, very talented women as band members, which you'll hear about. He was kind to animals as well as people. In fact, I saw a recent photo explaining that uh, he'd allowed part of his property to be used as a rehabilitation ground for deer that had been injured. And there's a great picture of him cradling this tiny deer and smiling. 
I believe he was a vegetarian, something he no doubt bonded over with uh, veggie pal Paul McCartney, who uh, lived not too far outside of London. And of course, one more way in which he went against the over-masculinity found in rock and roll and automobile culture was uh, placing a value on sensitivity. He was the most sensitive guitarist that I can think of, at least in rock and roll. And I think it's fair to say that his car obsession came from a very pure place. The type of cars he was into were associated with artists that he liked and was particularly drawn to the guitar players of, for example, Gene Vincent, who had a guitarist named Cliff Gallup, who Jeff Beck later paid tribute to on a recording that sounded so rockabilly and 50s, it doesn't even sound like Jeff Beck. And uh, of course, uh, James Burton, uh, well known as a country session player, but also did some seminal work with Elvis. So when you think about Elvis and Chuck Berry and Gene Vincent and Buddy Holly and Bill Haley and the whole culture surrounding early American rock and roll. Well, the automobile was such a part of it. Those hot cars and the hot guitar licks. So even though Jeff moved on to very different music and he helped modernize the guitar, for some reason, the cars of that early era always stuck with him. Over the years, he would develop a sizable car collection, including some hot rods he built himself. And when he wasn't on tour, he was frequently found with his head under the hood of one of his numerous automobiles. So there's so much to be said about Jeff Beck. There's no way to cover it all in one episode. There's no way to cover it all in several episodes. So much has been said already. So much will be said in the future. So I think what we're going to do here is uh, we'll start to hear from our guests and I want to focus on a few specific areas and stories. And even if you're familiar with some of these stories, such as Jeff Beck crossing paths with Stevie Wonder and how that changed music history and guitar history, or Jeff Beck being booked on Woodstock and saying, no, thank you. And some other things that have perhaps been discussed amongst all the Jeff Beck tributes, but I doubt at this level of detail. I promise you there are things here that you will hear which will blow your mind. And as you know, I'm not one to exaggerate or use hyperbole. And if you haven't read the description uh, for this episode on the podcast app, you're going to be blown away by who is here to tell you these things. Now, before we bring in our panel, and it's not really a panel. Everybody spoke separate. It's more of a collective. I just like to say panel. We're going to hear from yours truly. And uh, this was a piece I wrote for my Substack page. After I heard about Jeff, and I believe the breaking news was the day after he passed on January 11th. So I went down my rabbit hole, listening to Jeff, jotting down thoughts, reading tributes, watching the documentary. I thought a lot of really good stuff was written. I also felt there was so much more that needed to be said. So it was almost like this piece wrote itself. And the next thing you know, 4,000 words were written. And uh, I've heard from people at all levels of the music industry about this. And I'm very grateful. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to read all 4,000 words. I just want to read you the opening. And the piece is called Goodbye Pork Pie Strat, The Case for Jeff Beck, G-O-A-T. Quote, on Wednesday, January 11th, I was in a very upbeat mood. 
Over the weekend, I'd return from a monumental week, Joe Satriani's G4 experience in Las Vegas, to be a featured teacher, speaker, player among such esteemed company. It included names like Frampton, Morse, Lukather, and too many wonderful players of multiple generations to list, was beyond humbling. It was headed by my one-time local guitar sensei turned household name, Joe. All involved seemed to agree. 2023 was off to a great start, especially guitar-wise. Still high from the six-string extravaganza, I enthusiastically sat down to gather a few picks from the week before to share online. But first, a quick glance at Twitter. That's when I saw the following tweet from a music blog and online record store, Brooklyn Vegan. Quote, Jeff Beck dies at 78, unquote. This can't be, I thought. Jeff Beck seemed so alive and well. He was in the middle of an album cycle. New tour dates were recently announced. In a bizarre twist, he'd been getting more mainstream attention than ever, thanks to a movie star pal's personal drama. And this is just me talking. Of course, I'm referring to Johnny Depp. And now to continue with the essay. Clearly, this had to be a hoax. No one else was reporting on it. Alas, Brooklyn Vegan was simply ahead of the curve and lightning fast with their turnaround. Within minutes, notifications from Rolling Stone, The New York Times, CNN, and more confirming the shocking news. There was Jeff Beck's own official Twitter account with a statement. Next, a flurry of texts from fellow musicians. It was real. In an instant, 2023 had been hit with the darkest news possible for guitar enthusiasts. The next day felt like a national day of mourning, as though we had lost a pope, president, or monarch. However, while all those types have their detractors, Jeff Beck is universally appreciated and admired. If any musician deserves to lie in state, it is Jeff Beck. Unquote. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Alex. You know, yeah. it's, so it's, 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 it's the month's not even over, and it's, it's been, wow. So surreal. Right, it's just very much so. That's Vernon Reed. Of course, you know him from Living Color, but he plays with too many musicians to list of multiple genres, fluent in so many styles. He and I have become a miniature support group for each other whenever there's a big loss in music, especially in the guitar community, which unfortunately has been happening a bit too often. What comes to mind? How did you first get into him? Is there a certain period? of his work that you gravitate towards more than others? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think, well, for myself, my entry to Jeff Beck is really blow by blow. Say blow by blow, and then the record Wired. Yeah, guitar players in high school were, you know, everybody everybody was flipping out over blow by blow, yeah. you know? And, um, and Wired was just like, it was just a leap, kind of a leap forward from even where Blow by Blow was, you know. But but we weren't really aware of the, the so much of the Beck, Jeff Beck group and all the things he had done before. Also, the other the other thing that context for Jeff Beck was his work with Stevie Wonder, and, and that also had a tremendous impact. Yeah, he was on Talking Book. Right? Yeah, and this and this record was just a massive record. You know, uh, you know when I was in high school again. Yeah. Right? So, so, so connecting, there was this thing of connecting the guitarist from looking for another pure love, um, this iconic, you know, guest appearance, and and then, you know, so that put Jeff Beck in a, a context that yo, this cat is cool, and um, hearing him on you know blow by blow and. You know, all the subsequent wonderful records there and back and, you know, the live record with the Yon Hammer group, you know, all of that. 
Yeah, nobody else had those associations, right? To go from Stevie Wonder and then supposedly the the song trade. I've heard mixed things about Superstition was supposed to be Jeff Beck's song. Do you know about that? Yeah, yeah, that was a yeah, that was a story that it's kind of funny because it's connected to also to because we've ended as lovers, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of the, the Motown people and the British Invasion people had gotten to know each other, you know, because the both there was a there was a tour in in the UK where they put together some of the British Invasion bands with Motown. That's how the Motown people met a lot of those rock artists. Oh, I didn't know. And, uh, oh, interesting. And there were a lot of ongoing close associations. From that point on, I mean, you know, Mick Jagger and Marvin Gaye were very, very close friends. I knew about you that. Know? I knew about Mick yeah. Jagger, it, and then, you know, there's, there's, uh, they always, they always had that, that element, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, give me it shelter, from, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it stems from that time period. So, you know, the thing is, Stevie wrote this this badass tune for Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. And then so the word got around that Stevie was was working on this tune. Mm-hmm. And apparently Barry Gordy was like, that tune is over by dead body. Like apparently, like, no, you got to do that tune. Yeah, right? that's not going on and, a Jeff Beck record. <laughs> right. And and with that, all due respect, that, Stevie, you're doing this. <laughs> and yeah. and in fact that that actually that tune in particular really was a massive, massive number one hit for for Stevie and it really launched him as yeah. a to, I mean he was already a popular he was already a popular artist but this launched him into a whole other stratosphere yeah he was a crossover artist now right yeah That's and, and I think Jeff was pretty I think Jeff was pretty upset about uh-huh. you know you know because yeah. the song was written for him for him and it was yeah. like and it wound up, he kind of was covering the tune that, that he was supposed to be for him. Yeah. And apparently, as an apologia, uh, Stevie wrote, you know, because we've ended as lovers. Which is amazing. I mean, <laughs> I would say it worked out. So I want to pause right here. You'll hear a bit more from Vernon soon. It's not a whole lot. He did have to jump on a call with the New York Times for an album he'd written liner notes for. However, uh, this story really feels worth shining some light upon. Now, it's very hard to pick just one definitive signature Jeff Beck tune. But if you had to, his version of Stevie Wonder's composition, Because We've Ended as Lovers, is one that would probably generate among the most agreement. Ah, so amazing. To this day, that is state-of-the-art guitar playing. So the first part of the situation that Vernon was describing seems to be unquestioned, totally accurate. The song Superstition, which everybody knows as a Stevie Wonder song, to this day, it is among his top selling singles. I believe it is his best selling single. Um, On iTunes, it is his number one song. We all know that as a Stevie Wonder song. (laughs) 
What not everybody realizes is that the original plan for that song was for it to debut on an album by Jeff Beck's then new group, Beck Bogart, a piece. So uh, for more on this, why don't we ask the guy playing on that track with Jeff Beck, Carmine Apiece. What is the story? This is the story, you know, uh, yeah, well, I'll tell you exactly what it was. Okay, so Jeff Beck played on Talking Book. Yep. So in return, Stevie wrote a song for Jeff, which was Superstition. So the demo that he gave to Jeff, Jeff originally did it with Cozy Powell and, and Bobby Tench and all that, that band. Uh, so we heard the demo. The original, the earlier Jeff Beck group. So when they never released it, it was just a demo. So when we went to record at Chess Records, Jeff said, let's make it a BBA version. and We'll make it heavier and we'll slow it down and we'll make it what, what came out. So while we were recording, uh, Motown heard Stevie Wonder's version and said, this is a number one record. Why aren't we releasing this? And uh, I don't know what he said to them, but they released it and it did make a number one record. So our album came out three or four months later. Mm. So when our album came out, it looked like we did a cover of that. Oh, I see. It wasn't supposed to be a cover. No, and we had, I'm pretty sure that we had some different lyrics. I think the lyrics are definite. But I think he got that kind of riff from Jeff, the way Jeff plays, you know. You know? And, uh, That's what Vernon was saying. Clavinet, yeah. And I came, I, I just played with Vernon. We, we just played with Vernon in New York at the winery doing a, a tribute to At City Winery. winery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was man, Vernon's great. That's when I said, man, you got to play in the Cactus record, dude. So great. He's really great. He had such a cool sound. Yeah. You know? But, but anyway, when we recorded, to make it really weird, we were in LA doing the, some solos. So Jeff tuned the guitar down to C. If you huh. listen to the solo, it sounds like rubber bands. Oh, almost. yeah, there is some something really unusual. Really low. It's like really weird, right? Yeah. It, it created such an evil kind of solo. But we never did that live, obviously. And that was supposed to be the first version of that song. That was supposed to be the only version of that song. Wow. And so supposedly Stevie made it up to him by presenting it with because we've ended his love yeah i get and i played on that i played on that with blow by blow originally wow there's a lot to unpack there okay first of all how cool is it that we have a legend like carmine apiece here on moods and modes somebody that worked so closely with jeff beck uh, as you can hear, the connection was a little rough. He's in some remote part of Florida, but uh, we made it work. And uh, we're saving most of his interview for the back half of this episode. The insights are amazing. But uh, for now, I want to get to the bottom of this mystery of superstition and because we've ended as lovers. By the way, the Beck Bogart of Heath's version of superstition it sounds a lot like a tune later done by Lenny Kravitz called Always on the Run. In fact, if you play the opening riff and drum fill, it's almost identical. But we'll get into that uh, when we do another episode of Borrowed Music. 
Oh, and one more thing. I was not aware that Carmine was part of the original sessions that would lead to the album that would become Blow by Blow. Uh, during that time, there were lineup changes, and Carmine accepted an offer to join Jeff Beck's former singer, who is now blowing up on his own, Rod Stewart. But you'll hear more about that in the back half of the episode. Back to Superstition. Now, both Vernon and Carmine mentioned uh, Stevie Wonder's album, Talking Book. It's an essential Stevie album. Uh, you probably know the song, You Are the Sunshine of My Life. That is also on that record, as well as the definitive version of Superstition. And uh, there is this song where Jeff Beck plays the solo and Stevie actually calls out to Jeff. It's pretty cool. You all heard that, right? <laughs> Do it, Jeff. And that was significant because I believe he was supposed to be anonymous on the record, which was a common thing. I mean, Jeff Beck was a huge name at that point. He certainly didn't need the recognition or the credit. And you'd have no problem coming up with other examples in the 70s of somebody guesting on another album who's a really big name and the audience having fun guessing. Is that who I think it is? So maybe it was supposed to be one of those secret surprises. But clearly Stevie is so into it. Jeff's playing, he can't help but give it away. Who can blame him? Oh, by the way, the name of that song is Looking for Another Pure Love. Listen to how Jeff Beck ends the solo. Now let's listen to how he ends his solo on his own album, Blow by Blow, on Stevie's tune, Cause We've Ended as Lovers. <laughs> Do you hear the similarity? Same lick, same key, different octave. I never noticed that before. But back to the big mystery at hand was Cause We've Ended as Lovers, written for or handed over to Jeff Beck by Stevie Wonder to make up for the kerfuffle surrounding superstition. I think the answer can be gleaned from the fact that Cause We've Ended as Lovers was already in existence. Enter Sarita. Who's Sarita, you may ask? Well, around the time all this is going on, there is a soulful singer signed to Motown, and her name is Sarita. She is also married to Stevie Wonder. Now, I don't want to be judgmental here, but a few years later, it looks like Sarita is married to somebody else, or at least uh, in a relationship with um, Billy Preston, as they are on an album cover together, looking very cozy. And there's another album of her with somebody else uh, looking very cozy. So again, no judgment, but Sarita seems to enjoy working with whoever her spouse happens to be at the time. So back to the early 70s. She's married to Stevie Wonder, and uh, Stevie writes an album for her. Um, Stevie Wonder presents Sarita, and he's written all the songs. One of those songs is Cause We've Ended as Lovers. Okay, it's very pretty. The arrangement is quite different. It doesn't go straight to the B section. Uh, there are several verses in a row. Now here's the chorus. Cause we've ended now as lovers, done. 
Now, again, that's very pretty. Uh, I just feel like it's a lot of words. Then again, I'm so used to the instrumental version. Da 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 dee da 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 da. So hearing it with these words crammed in, we've ended now as lovers. It just feels a little clunky, but what do I know? The point is, the song was out there. Oh, I should also mention that it has a featured uh, backup vocalist named Michael Cimbello. He would have a hit that would become definitive of the 80s. Yes, that Michael Cimbello. Oh, the things you find out when you dig deep into music. So finally, to put this to rest, uh, let's hear a clip I found online of Jeff Beck himself talking about this whole thing. When I heard that album, I just thought, oh, wow. Her voice was like a crystal stream flowing. And I started playing because we ended as lovers. Playing the melody that Sarita sang, Max Milton said, that's beautiful, what is it? And I played him the Sarita version. He went, why don't we do that as an instrumental? So that's what happened, folks. Jeff Beck was exploring what to do for his next project. Carmine is still a part of these sessions at that point. And the keyboardist, Max Middleton, overhears Jeff Beck listening to the album Stevie Wonder Presents by Sarita. And she's singing because we've ended as lovers. Jeff is playing along on guitar. Max Middleton suggests, why don't we do that as an instrumental? The rest is history. Mystery solved. So normally we take a quick break right around this time. I announce upcoming tour dates, any housekeeping, and so forth. Not today. Uh, there is too much to get to. Uh, we are purely paying tribute to Jeff. So we're just going to plow on through. And let's continue with Vernon Reed. Yeah, I mean, that kind of closeness yeah. um, between artists like supposedly in different genres, I mean, it's incredibly inspiring. I mean, yeah. you hear the love and the friendship. And even with that being strained, the fact that they were able to come back on track and, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that um, Stevie, Stevie is really amongst the many people mourning Jeff Beck's passing. I mean, Stevie had a very particular bond, but without, you know, Stevie's version is the definitive version. Yeah, exactly. Right from the top, the, the B, that clavinet, yeah. you know, it, it, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that, yeah, it was supposed to happen that way. It was a yeah, messy, absolutely. right? Absolutely. It was one of those messy, necessary things in yeah. in life, you know. And yeah. but they, but it didn't destroy them as as friends at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, it, even it, it, though it was a problem, <laughs> and we all benefited from it. We all yeah. benefited yeah. from it. It's incredible. All right, so we've already solved the mystery of Because We've Ended as Lovers. Let's just close out the Jeff Beck, uh, Stevie Wonder connection segment with a little bit of Jeff Beck being interviewed, talking about how it all started. Stevie's record company needed him to do something, and I wasn't doing anything. And an epic. So what if we got you in the studio with Stevie? We couldn't wait to, to, for this to happen. So the deal was I was to play a couple of tracks on Stevie's album, Talking Book, and then he'd write me a couple of tracks, one of which was Superstition. I started playing the drums um, in a break. He'd gone out for lunch and he'd come back and he was clapping along to my bit, my rhythm. I said, Steve, it's not, you know, I'm not a drummer. He goes, yeah, you are now. <laughs> Don't stop. And he just grabbed the, the clavinet and started playing that vamp. 
and I'm sing- thinking, Christ, I'm playing drums to Stevie Wonder. And when the demo went back to Motown, Barry Gordy heard it. He said, this is the best thing you've ever written. So out comes Stevie's single, and it's a smash, number one, and it still is like the biggest seller, I think, of all time of his singles. And it worked out okay because it was a much better version than the one we did, I think. It was, it, we did a heavy metal version. I don't think he cared for it too much. <laughs> Ouch. Well, to be fair, I don't think I've ever heard a hint of heavy rock or metal in uh, Stevie's music. And uh, you know what? He doesn't have to like it. And in the end, how cool that there are multiple versions of this great song, including one that came later by Stevie Ray Vaughan. So now let's get the perspective of someone who is not just a musician, but a music writer who has interviewed Jeff. Dave Rubin is the author of numerous method books, including Jeff Beck, a step-by-step breakdown of his guitar styles and techniques. Dave and I are working on a book due this year, Knock on Wood, also out on Hal Leonard. Dave has interviewed Jeff Beck twice in person, once on the phone. Now, you may recall Dave from our tribute episode to Peter Green. In fact, it was Dave who pointed out that several albums that came out post Fleetwood Mac credited to Green have guitar solos played by somebody else. This was a real, what you talk about, Willis, moment. Uh, Those of us of a certain age will understand that reference. Similarly, credit to Dave for inspiring me to chase down what has turned out to be an urban music biz legend. The notion that because we've ended as lovers was the airline voucher to the canceled flight of superstition making its debut on a Jeff Beck recording. We just might have to start referring to Dave Rubin as the Mythbuster. Here's Dave. I know you met him a few times. Yes, which is, you know, the huge thrill along with, you know, B.B. King and John Lee Hooker and all the blues guys that I got to meet, too. And he was great, by the way. He was down to earth. He was humble. He answered all my questions. Uh, it, it was it was cool. There's actually three interviews. One was on the phone, but two were in person. So the one was just he and I in the hotel room, which was like, you know, I'm pinching. I'm pinching myself. Yeah. Like, that must have been amazing. Uh, and then the other one, which is a whole different story. I don't know if we have even time for all uh-huh. this, was him and B.B. King together. Oh, my goodness. So I have a little anecdote to go with that. And then I have the anecdote that Jeff told me that okay. I think you'll really like to have in this. Okay. So I'm kind of going backwards here. But there was some kind of some kind of cable show. People could call in requests or something. Uh-huh. And, and artists were there, and they would play. I don't know why BB King was part of that. It was, it, it was done here in New York. But anyway, uh-huh. the publicist, uh, because I was going to write the story in the interview, and it was going to be a, a cover story, mm-hmm. allowed me to attend the rehearsal. Right. Which there wasn't going to be anybody there except the crew, BB and Jeff. Mm. So this was a this was a this was at uh, John Jay College. I don't know why it was at John Jay College either. It was an auditorium there. So a little a little anecdote here, Alex. So BB mm-hmm. um, comes out, and uh, yeah, it's not much of an audience there. And, and I'm there with the publicist in the back. There's no other journalist there but me. Uh-huh. And BB's uh, sort of pre- you know he's talking to people. He's doing it like it's a bit of a show, but it's his it's his warm up. Did you tell me what time period this? Sorry to interrupt. What time this was? 
in the 90s, 90s somewhere okay. in the mid 90s mid 90s okay that, that's good enough uh so bb's his band is there you know so bb plays with i had seen bb a lot of times playing i've really probably seen him more than any other any other blues musician and uh, always great but better sometimes than others he was really loose and he was also playing louder than he normally does because he once told me in an interview that he can never turn the amp up in the studio because the engineers are always telling him to turn it down, and he was so polite he never would fight with them. Okay. <laughs> only live did he get the right. True. True story. <laughs> only live did he get to play with the tone, because he actually wanted a better tone. Uh-huh. Anyway, so he plays a little bit, and it's the loosest I've ever seen him play. It's, it's wonderful. Oh, wow. And then Jeff comes out. Now, I don't think B.B. knew who Jeff was. Him, and I'm not being sarcastic or even after all that time, even post sixties, yeah, I think that it was like another one of these British guys, <laughs> like like Britain yeah, and British Ron invasion guys, yeah, he, another one of these guys. guys. Uh-huh. Clapton, he was close to Jeff. Uh, BB was close with Clapton. Yeah, they were friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't really think it didn't look to me like he knew who he was. So they're going to do two blues songs together. One was "Key to the Highway," and I can't remember the second. Here's the, here's the gist of the story, though. So they start playing it. And, of course, B.B. gives the nod to Jeff to, to solo first. So here's Beck with his Strat and, and a Marshall half stack. And, now, and there's B.B. with his Lab Series. I never liked that amp, that Gibson Lab Series amp. Like yeah, BB interesting. So Beck starts playing, and you can see what's, what's happening. It reminds me, not to insert myself into the story, when I played with Chuck Berry and I got the solo, I wanted to play my best. I didn't want to look like I was trying to show him up. Sure, sure. I saw that with Beck. Beck was going to be respectful, sure, but he was going to play. Yeah, he's going to do what he does. And he played yeah. great. Yeah. First of all, he played a little. He was first of all he was louder than BB probably would have been playing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and BB's eye, you know, eyes went wide when Beck started playing. Played <laughs> <laughs> yeah. great. Now it's BB's turn to solo. First thing BB does is he rolls his volume up. Okay. <laughs> and now BB is like, he's been put on notice. Yeah. If he thought he was going to walk through this rehearsal uh-huh. with Jeff Beck, he was not. He had another thing coming. Yeah. <laughs> he was not. Yeah. And it's probably the best I ever heard him play. Oh, wow. Because now he really had somebody who was challenging him. Yeah. With respect challenging him. Yeah. He wasn't, yeah. wasn't playing flashy. He just played great blues like Jeff Beck would play. Yeah, well, you know? a, a fire was lit. He needed somebody yeah, to so light that that's, fire. That's, that, that's my story with that. But uh, the one in the hotel room, I wanted to get this anecdote. I, I, I may have told you this, but I'm going to tell it to you again. Okay, yeah, yeah, tell me the story. And this is the same time period, 90s? Or it is the same time. It's okay. almost in like a year or so, these, but these, all these, and then once on the phone where I I had to uh-huh. follow up on uh, a magazine interview with Jeff, and that was nice, too. And I might tell you a little bit about that if we have okay. time. Sure. But sure. so we're talking, and again, he's answered all, all, all my questions, and I'm, you know, I'm on cloud nine here. Yeah. My sure. all-time hero here. And um, so he tells me this little anecdote. We got around to, to, to Hendrix, mm-hmm. and I have some comments to make about that after I tell you the story. Yeah, please. And he says to me, he says, yeah, he says, he says, one, one morning, he says, one Sunday morning, really early, mm-hmm. in the mid-60s, he said, a former girlfriend calls me up, wakes me up, early Sunday morning. And she says to me, 
say, uh, by the way, I saw this guy, Jimi Hendrix, last night. You and Clapton and Page are finished. (laughs) Yeah, you did tell me. That's great. Oh, man. So much humor. Uh, Jeff is keeping us laughing despite the sad circumstances. And I didn't know him, but I'd like to think he'd appreciate that. From stories like that to uh, the funny quotes in the solos to uh, the guitar being tuned like rubber bands to uh, his describing Stevie Wonder's reaction to that version of the song. So now I'd like to bring in somebody who knew him Really well, Melissa Dragic has done Jeff Beck's PR for more than 20 years, and she's not used to being asked the questions. Uh, She's used to setting up the interviews, and she took some time to think about doing this and agreed to do it, and I'm so grateful. I mean, it's so soon, and she was working with him hands-on right until the very end, but she thought it would be good to join us and share her perspective, so... Uh, it's a big honor. Here is Melissa. Well, I started working with him um, before the Who Else album came out, which was in 99. So um, I, I think we met. You know, I was trying to remember when it was, when all this kind of happened a month ago. Uh-huh. It was in 98 at some point. Um, I went to New York to do the uh, photo shoot and all that for that album. And that's when I met him. But when I went to... Uh, start working at Epic. I had come from relativity and my boss knew that I had worked with both uh-huh. Joe Triani and Steve. I, so Joe was at Epic at the yeah. time. And so of course I was assigned him right away. And then, um, we had uh-huh. a publicity meeting and Jeff had this record coming out and they're like, Oh, we're going to give Melissa Jeff Beck. And I was like, okay. And everybody uh-huh. started laughing. Like all the public, they're all snickering. I'm like, why are you uh-huh. laughing? It's so funny. Uh-huh. And they said, Oh, Jeff, notorious he hates pr he'll he's really difficult so good luck <laughs> have fun so uh-huh. i went to new york for this photo shoot and uh-huh. i was like oh god this is gonna be you know torture uh-huh. i've worked with a lot of artists that don't like doing interviews and it's not fun and uh i called his manager ralph baker when i got there and he said oh jeff's down in the bar just go down and say hi to him and i'll, I'll be down there in a minute and i thought oh great <laughs> now i have to go introduce myself to this guy who doesn't uh-huh. like doing uh, press and I'm going to be his publicist. Right. But when I met him, when I went down there, he, he, I looked like somebody that a friend of his named Joe, who he obviously cared for. And I it never had a problem. He loved me from that moment. And it was easy. <laughs> All right. Quick interruption for listeners in the United States who might've heard that and said, wait a second. Jeff thought Melissa reminded him of his friend, Joe. Uh, let me explain. If you go to the UK and you meet somebody named Joanne, Joanna, uh, maybe even Joan, uh, it's almost more common for them to go by Joe. I know several Joes. The guitarist Steve Hackett is married to a Joe. So no, Jeff Beck was not referring to his buddy Joe, the guy who works down at the garage. I, sh- I shouldn't say easy. He still did like doing interviews, but you know, I was able to get him to do stuff that he needed to do. So Yeah. He had high standards and which is good. I mean, I think that on every record, um, there was a a period of time where, where things changed for him. And that was when he was managed by Harvey Uh Goldsmith. Um, he did things I never thought he would do Uh when he was managed by Harvey. You know, we did American Idol and, um, (laughs) you know, the tonight show for like the first time in a long time and things like that. But, um, you know, I went to the grand prix in long beach with him and he did the national anthem and I never saw him so excited about being, I mean, because he loved cars yeah. almost as much as he loved guitars. So I tried to incorporate that kind of press for him so that it 
it made it interesting rather than just talking about, he hated talking about where do you put your fingers on the strings? What, what cables do you use? What, you know, what pickup is that? Solid state amps versus tube amps. <laughs> well, that'd be yeah. stuff you understand, but not me. Um, he just, he hated those kind of things. Right. So, All the nerd questions. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm sure guitar players want to know, but for him, um, that was like, I don't want to talk about that stuff. So if you gave him those kind of interviews, forget it. He wasn't going to be happy and he wasn't going to want to do it. Um, I just always made sure whoever he was talking to, I just made sure they didn't ask those kind of things. You know, please just don't ask him about his strings. You know, I'll get it from the guitar tech if you need to know it, but just don't ask Jeff. I don't blame him. Were you around for the documentary? Is it still on the run? Yeah. um, Yes. I mean, I was, I've been involved with him pretty steadily since 2009 there was a period of time i got laid off from epic and started my own company um but he he wasn't really doing anything during those years uh-huh. um so i came back into the picture for the rock and Roll hall of fame induction in 2009 i think it was uh-huh. um so yeah i was but a lot of that stuff he would do over in england so it wasn't like i was involved in that i was more involved in the book the the big coffee table uh-huh. book that he did it was a beautiful book oh i I haven't. Oh seen. my gosh. I can't remember the name of the company that did it. I'll find it and send really? it to you, but um, it's a company in England that does books with a lot of, Oh, oh I need that. I, I mean, yeah, I have one. It was numbered oh. and all that, but he came here to, to LA. Um, he always stayed at the sunset marquee and we, uh-huh. uh, his friend in San Francisco brought some of his guitar or his cars. He had cars over here too, brought some of the cars down and we did a photo shoot with Ross Alphen, like in the, middle of the sunset marquee, like on this grassy area. And then we had a book release party at um, Mel's diner on sunset. Yeah. I saw there's clips of that in the documentary, which is really cool. Yep. So no, I didn't, I didn't really have a lot to do with the documentary. I mean, I think that, I mean, I was definitely aware of it, but um, I think all that kind of went through management and all happened over in, in England. Yeah. It's, I think it's pretty well done. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. Sure. I mean, he definitely gave Access. I was made more aware of his, just his recognition of, uh, you know, high, like what to career moves to make and, and not to make, at least for him, which I can, I can understand for, you know, business, music business people he was working with might've driv- driven him crazy. Yeah. But yeah, the Yardbirds are doing this tour in the mid sixties in the U S and it's this rock, this Dick Clark tour, and it's not, it's not like they're playing with, you know, Little Richard and Screaming mm-hmm. Jay and you know these great artists. It's like the son of Jerry Lee Lewis, who supposedly wasn't that good. A bunch of other, right, right, groups that you know just really we, we've never we're nobody's <laughs> talking about today, and he just went home. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, like, I, re- I remember him telling stories about um, about uh, uh, Woodstock and why, you know, he didn't want to do it. He just, I think they had done a, a gig a couple nights before. That was my other example. Yeah. He just felt that Rod wasn't ready. And he was like, I'm not going to go out there and have us fail. So I'd rather cancel than, than and, you know, he was on the, the posters and everything. I've seen him, yeah. He just didn't think that, and I think that's. That's what obviously broke them up. I'm, as far as I know, right? Um, was him canceling that gig? I think it pissed off Ron and, and Rod. Um, I mean, he had definitely an a interesting relationship with Rod over the years, but yeah, I think in the end they, you know, they played at the Hollywood Bowl. Not 
that long ago. Yeah, it's and he's Rod's in the documentary, and he's <clears throat> seems to be taking it all in in stride. Rod and Ron, they got a call. Jeff's gone home. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that. And I mean, who, that was the end of the band. I don't think any of them realized what Woodstock was going to be. Obviously, you know, in terms of like the the legendary status of it at this point in our lives, but no, you know, I I don't think he ever regretted it. Really, I I don't remember him saying anything. Oh no, that. clearly, yeah. All right, I'm going to jump in for a moment. You may hear that I was clearly under the weather that day. I'd just gotten back from L.A. I brought something back with me, uh, the common cold. It wasn't the big you-know-what. I took the test. But uh, that's why I sound that way. And I'm still getting over it, but feeling better. Anyway, how insane is it that uh, Jeff Beck had such high standards, they weren't ready to do Woodstock, and he said, nope, not doing it. I saw this big festival looming up on the set on the calendar. And I was nervous about it. I thought, we, we, we're not ready for that, you know. We're not ready to go up against Sly and the Family Stone. And when I saw the film, I just thought, thank God for my integrity. Thank God that the little birdie whispered, don't do it. Because I would have been up there, dated and, and frozen with that image, you know, with the music not being quite right. I did the right thing. Well, Rod, Rod Stewart in the right. documentary, he agrees that now that Jeff did the right thing by calling off Woodstock. Like he wished he would have gotten a call yeah, directly. It could absolutely. have been explained, but he, he agrees. It w- they weren't ready. And yeah, and some groups ended up in that film that didn't look that great. I mean, obviously the, the Grateful Dead did fine after that in the seventies, but that's not their finest moment. <laughs> yeah. well, I worked at, I worked for years with Fogarty and he uh, tells lots of stories of that night and why he didn't want to be in the, in the, um, in the movie because they went on at like three in the morning because the Grateful mm-hmm. Dead, everything was running so late anyway. And then the Grateful Dead like took a break in the middle of it and made it go on so, so long. And what Jimi Hendrix ended up playing at like six in the morning. Right. Yeah. It was daylight. It was already daylight. Yeah. Yeah. Which added to Crazy. the mystique, but only, only Hendrix, I think, benefited from that like <laughs> yeah exactly no i was just going to say that i think a lot of people have have sort of maybe pinpointed this but look at all the female musicians and singers that he you know gravitated towards and and you know Melda may and beth hart and um joss stone and then all the the girls that he the girl ronda uk ronda obviously um i think he just he he did something that most Jennifer Batten. Jennifer Batten. Gosh, I can't forget. And it's just so refreshing that somebody from that period and, you know, from the, you know, one of these original rock and roll people was so um, open-minded to, yeah, not being one of the, yeah, one of these rock stereotypical male rock and roll types. I just think, um, I think there's, I don't know if if I ever had that conversation with him. So it's just my opinion, but I think that he feels a lot or felt a lot more comfortable around women in general, not he's married. He loved, loved his wife, you know, talked about her all the time. Um, but I think that he just felt more comfortable in, in that sort of world. But I think he also wanted to champion these artists. And I think he had a, a very strong connection with Imelda May, uh, Josh Stone, um, like we already talked about, you know, and, and the musicians like Rhonda and, and Jennifer, I mean, Rhonda worked with Prince. Like that was my dream to have, 
Prince and Jeff do something together. Oh, that would and I was at a Music Cares dinner uh-huh. where Jeff performed Streisand and Prince was at our table. Oh, wow. It was supposed to be Prince, Stevie Wonder, and Jeff. Can you imagine? Wow. Stevie Wonder was there, but he didn't sit with us. Uh-huh. And Prince walked in and sat down. I went up to the publicist, which is this girl, Sujata, who I know from Universal. And I said, can you please introduce him? Because Prince was shy. Jeff was shy. Right. Nobody was talking to each other. They were across the table. And there's a big thing in the middle, you know, big, you know, flower arrangement or whatever. And Prince, Prince was with Misty Copeland and they were just whispering to each other, not, not talking to anybody at the table. And, um, the, my friend, the publicist was like, I can't, you know, if Prince wants to talk to him, he will. So at, at the end of the evening, they didn't end up, you know, saying hello to each other or whatever. But when Jeff went on stage, Prince turned uh-huh. and focused directly on him. And I was like, Oh my God, they could do such a great song together. But that obviously never happened. Yeah. Uh, Bummer. Lost, lost opportunity. I think Jeff would have done it for sure. And I, you know, Prince was such an amazing guitar player that I don't think people ever gave him credit for either, you know, until after yeah. he passed. I think they, they do now. All right. I'm jumping in for a quick moment. Can you imagine Prince and Jeff Beck playing together? How amazing that would have been. And it probably sounds crazy that they were seated at the same table and never spoke. But you have to remember that at these big industry events, uh, the tables are pretty giant. You know, it can be a dozen or more people um, in this round table. It can be hard to talk to an individual person. And many artists, uh, myself included, are a bit introverted, especially in crowds. And not all of us are into the whole schmooze component that goes along with the music and entertainment industry. And if I had to guess, I'd imagine that Prince hated it. And his PR person knew not to take him around trying to introduce him to people because that was not going to fly. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of memories about Jeff that I have. I just, he was really funny. I think people don't know that he was really funny. He liked to do little practical jokes kind of things. Um, silly, really interesting, caring. I mean, he always asked how my family is, how my kids are, you know, it's like, you don't, you work with a lot of people that don't really get involved in your personal life or know that much about you other than you tell them what to do and they do it, you know? Yeah. And he's the only artist that ever thanked me for a Grammy from the stage, you know, I mean, not that you expect those accolades or whatever, but it's like when you work with somebody hard, you know, you work hard on a, on a project. It's like, it's, it's appreciated that they appreciate what you do for them. And, um, he was just that kind of guy. Yeah. It's tragic. And I hope, I hope that they, I know there's talk of tributes, you know, down the line, but I hope that they really do come through and do those kind of things. Cause I'm sure there's, you know, 20 guitar players that would line up wanting to, to be up there. I mean, everybody's probably going to be afraid just like, you know, with a Van Halen tribute playing those parts, but I hope that that somebody does it. And right here, uh, Melissa and I talked about a moving tribute that happened, and we don't know that it's going to be released publicly, so I'm not going to share the details. I'll just say that it involved uh, one of Jeff's recent musical colleagues paying tribute to him at his funeral, and it sounds beautiful. I hope we get to hear it. I also talked to her about uh, how Jeff was so exploratory, and sometimes he would get into an area of music, such as electronic music in the 2000s, and uh, just explore it, not necessarily return to it. Another example is 1985's Flash album, which has Doug Wimbish on bass, interestingly, and Carmine on drums. 
Um, that's a real 80s pop record. He never really returned to that. And I got the same sense with uh, what turned out to be Jeff Beck's final record, unfortunately. You could tell this probably isn't going to be his main thing from here on out. Right. <laughs> but, you know, he's not afraid to explore these areas. I got the same sense with the uh, the recording with Johnny. The recording with Johnny, there was another record um, that didn't end up coming out because this kind of took over during the pandemic. You know, Johnny was living with with him and they just started recording. And I don't think it was a plan. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, I didn't. He, um, before that trial huh. that Johnny just was part of, he was living with, with Jeff. Yeah. yeah. That must have been very helpful for, that was probably very therapeutic for him, to, for Johnny dealing with that trial, right? To be with his friend and. I guess just away from all the the Hollywood craziness, <laughs> just focusing on music right. and art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an interesting friendship, but um, you know, it was genuine from what I saw. All right, I don't want to dwell on celebrity gossip, but it really can't be ignored that the circumstances before Jeff passed away were pretty incredible. The actor Johnny Depp was going through what would turn out to be the divorce trial of the century so far. And the verdict of that trial corresponded with the opening night of their tour together in the UK, which was kind of crazy. So uh, there was a moment there where you could not turn on CNN or TMZ without seeing the name Jeff Beck. Normally, Jeff Beck receiving more widespread name recognition would be a great thing. It's unfortunate it took the Depp Heard media circus for that to happen. Okay, so we will hear a bit more from Melissa, but right now I want to pivot to my chat with Carmine of Heath. Of course, Carmine was part of Beck Bogart of Peace. He was also part of the sessions that would turn into Blow by Blow. We heard a little bit about this earlier in the episode. And during the 70s, his main gig was playing drums for Rod Stewart, formerly of the Jeff Beck group. And uh, he even co-wrote a song called Do You Think I'm Sexy? Oh, You know that song. I actually think it's one of the more successful rock songs that worked in the disco era. In the 80s, he reunited with Jeff Beck in the studio for the album Flash, which was largely a collaboration with different singers on each tune, one of them being Rod Stewart during a thaw in Jeff and Rod's relationship, which yielded the hit People Get Ready. And before all that, in the 60s, Carmen was part of Vanilla Fudge, which had a huge following, especially in the UK among rock royalty which you'll hear about let's bring in carmine god that that blew me away you know the, the jeff dying god i'm so sorry Terrible, yeah man. I mean, we have a live album uh a box set coming out and soon with the live in japan and live mm-hmm. at the london rainbow which was never released and the japan one was never released worldwide there's seven new oh. songs on there and i'm actually uh, i'm singing seven of them you know, oh, wow. when I had a voice wow. back then, now my voice is yeah. gone. You know, what happens when you get old? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure you're pulling it off. I'm, I'm sorry also about Tim. I did, you know, there's no Tim. Oh, my God. It's, uh, I'm the last man standing in that band. It's yeah. Fucking crazy, man. You know, whoever thought, you know, we're like brothers. Terrible. You know, I didn't realize how much you guys toured. I'm, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm glad there's live stuff 
being released that wasn't performed. Yeah, me too. I mean, we did this live stuff in 74, and we were going to release it then, but then then Tim had a problem with our managers, and he didn't want to do it, and all kinds of baloney. So it's just been sitting around. People made bootlegs of it, you know, and and but I, I mixed it a few years ago with Jeff's, uh, with Jeff's engineer, and last time I talked to Jeff, he said, you know, the great, playing is great, and it's very humorous. Yeah. I said, humorous? He said, yeah, I'll do something stupid and silly, and Tim would answer me something silly, and then you would answer Tim. <laughs> it goes around like that, you know, in different parts of the, of the live thing. I said, yeah, you're right. It is silly. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, how we died so fast, you know. Yeah, it was such a shock. Unbelievable. I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. So I learned something from when Tim passed away. Uh-huh. It was like, for me, it was like an eye-opener, not only for Tim passing away, but for life. Yeah. It's like, you know, I was 75 when he passed away, and, and I was thinking about getting another car. Uh-huh. You know, I had a four-car garage, and I had three cars yeah. in it. Yeah. And I was thinking, ah, maybe I, I, don't know, I should get it. I don't know. And I said, you know what? Get the, get the car. car. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah, I never know what's going to happen. I'm getting the car. Yes. And now Jeff passed away. I got to trade one of my cars in to get a different car. So I'm having trouble with it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I got to cost me some more money. I said, fuck the money. I'm just going to get another car. Yeah. You know? I know how much Jeff loved cars. And I just sent him last Sunday, I sent him a picture of a, of a 1932 three-window coupe I saw at a, a car show in, in Florida. That, I live in Florida. Uh-huh. And it was the same time we sent him all the credits and the liner notes for the album, the live album, and we were waiting for him to okay it, you know? And then two days later, he died. It was like, wow. oh, my God, you know? Wow. When was the last time you saw him? Anyway. Oh, God. It's been a few years because between COVID and him going on tour and me still playing, you know, we never were in the same place, you know? Yeah. And uh, I talked to him a few times, you know, but, but that's what Jeff was like. You, you're in or you're out, you're on or off, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's been Jeff all his career, you know. But we, now oh, come on, I know him since 1967. We've been friends, you know. When we did People Get Ready, he was staying at my house. But, you know, we've done stuff. He'd played with, uh, with me with Vanilla Fudge on the Mystery Album. He was J.B. Toad. Oh, is that right? On there. And uh, then he called me up one day and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, nothing, nothing much. Why? He says, I'm in town. I'm, I'm at the studio with Stanley Clark. Huh. You got drums at your house? I said, yeah, I got a little set. He goes, throw them in the car, come down to the studio. So I said, okay. And I get there and uh, Jeff has helped me, you know, with his uh, roadie taking the drums out of the car. We set him up. Next thing you know, we did Rock and Roll Jelly, you know. Wow. And that was really good. So I love Stanley, too, you know. And, you know, we, we were friends. All of us were friends. And, and you know, it was, it was great, you know. You know, in yeah. those kind of situations, <clears throat> you don't look for a session fee or nothing, you know. Yeah. You just go down and have some fun, you know. Yeah. It's just for the art. Yeah. Yeah, just for the art. I mean, pretty much everything I do now is for the art. Because, as you know, with the invention of Spotify – we don't make any money on recording anymore. You know, you get an advance and you release something mm-hmm. and you're lucky if you, uh, if you basically recoup. You know? <laughs> as far as songwriting, forget about it, you know? Exactly. Well, it's interesting. I'll send you this piece I wrote about Jeff. It's been getting a lot of nice uh, 
oh, yeah. I wrote a Substack piece. One of the things yeah, I same, mentioned yeah. is that he uh, I, I, didn't write, you know, he was happy to make less money. You know, his signature songs yeah. are written by, you know, Bex Bolero's yeah. Jimmy Page, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat is Mingus, the yeah, most money. I mean, on the BBA, on the BBA record, on our BBA record, I wrote Oh to Love You by Split It Three Ways. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he didn't, you know, with, with the other songs that we wrote, me and Tim wrote the melody and the lyrics, so that's your song, but yeah. he put some nice riffs together. So he was not really a great songwriter. I mean... Well, he recognized when, that. When was, yeah, when I was with Rod Stewart, I learned how to be a better songwriter with him. And I learned about image with him, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, Matter of fact, a weird situation when BBA broke up, I was with Jeff in England and I played on five of the songs that were on Blow by Blow, mm -hmm. you know, and I worked with George Martin. Then we couldn't work out a deal. Oh, is that right? You know, but in retrospect, if I would have been on the album, I would have went on tour with Jeff and I wouldn't have joined Rod Stewart. Right, so in joining right. Rod, I learned a lot more about the business. I learned how to write songs. I had number one records with Rod with Sexy and Young Turks. Yeah, you did uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy? Yeah, it really did a good thing for me to go with Rod rather than be on Blow by Blow tour, you know, which would have been Jeff Beck. And even with Rod, it was like the Rod, the Rod, uh, Rod Stewart band, and we had a percentage of the uh, of the take. And my little percentage of that take was much more than my 33% of BBA, you know? That's my great. Little, so in essence, uh, only recently I realized that. I said, if I was on Blow by Blow, uh, which did really well, and I wouldn't have joined Rod Stewart, and then, then my whole career would have been different, you know? I'm sure. So it's kind of a tough call, though, because you would have been on blow by blow. Right? <laughs> it's just biblical. Yeah, at the time, it happened that way, you know? I couldn't work out a deal with Epic. My managers told me, look, you don't want to be on a sideman as Jeff Beck. When we were working on it, we didn't know if it was going to be a Beck a Peace album or a Beck album. Then it ended up they wanted to do a Beck album, and we couldn't work out a deal to do a featuring or something because I was signed to Epic also. So, you know, just all that business baloney, you know. So my manager said, you'd be better off not as a sideman for Jeff Beck because you just came out equal bill, you know. So I said, okay. And then nothing happened for a couple of years. And then, well, actually a year and a half. It was a year and a half. And then I joined Rod Stewart. And, was, and my career really took off after that. Yeah. It was Jeff Beck's old singer, you know, so. Yeah, yeah but, uh, and Jeff was going, you know, playing things. And as you said, I played on this and played on that, you know, and uh, hold on a sec. Yeah, so I, I played on different things with Jeff. He played on stuff with me. And, you know, the, the first time we played together was on a Coke commercial. I was going to ask, how did you guys first play together? That's how it happened, a commercial? Uh, well, I, I think we used to jam, like when we went over to England, uh, there was a place called the Speakeasy that was the place to, to play. Uh -huh. It was a little place, but when you played it, it was a really great, prestigious place to play. You know, Jimi Hendrix hung out there, the Cream, Yardbirds, the Who, everybody was there that meant something. So when we played with Vanilla Fudge, I mean, the place was packed with everybody like that, you know. And uh, I heard that some of the Beatles were there and blah, blah, blah. So Jeff was there. And then on the off nights, we'd go down there to hang out. Jeff would hang out. And we jam. I remember we jammed one time, and I, I destroyed the guy's drum set, whoever drum set was there. Okay. <laughs> you know, in those days, I used to play like a freaking animal. Right, and drum sets weren't what they are today. I, yeah, right? yeah, and I turned, I turned the, the hi-hat the, the hi symbol inside out <laughs> from banging it. And then after that, we went, we, you know, we were in America, 
And we, you know, we uh, Jeff came out with the Truth album, and we loved it. We said, "Wow, yeah, you know, such what an amazing effort. album!" So we, so we really liked Jeff and, and Rod and all that stuff. So you know, and then it was like nineteen, beginning of '69, I think. Led Zeppelin was our opening act at the time with Vanilla Fudge, and not a bad opener. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, oh, we had so many openers like that: Slime the Family Stone, Frank Zappa. You know, just yeah. all these guys. But it wasn't a business yet, you know? Different yeah. times. It was just a lot of fun. So we had this co-commercial book, and we were making big money at the time. It was like 10 grand, you know, to do this co-commercial. It was two songs. So our guitar player got sick, right? So we had the same attorney that Jeff had, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, the Yardbirds, the Rascals. He had all these people. So, you know, our manager's called him and said, you know, we need a guitar player. So Jeff happened to be in town. And I just learned he got $300 for the session. I didn't even know that, huh. you know. But he came down and he played with us. He had the wah-wah going and, and, and Jeff played with us. So me and Tim, for some stupid reason, me and Tim did the vocals. I don't know why, you know. I did the second song, Mostly Me, and Tim did the harmony in the second song. Uh-huh. It was me and Tim. So it sounded either like BBA with Mark Stein from The Fudge or Jeff Beck with Vanilla Fudge. Right, right. I put both of them on my Facebook, you know. And this was before Jeff passed away. Oh, I just yeah. put it on there for fun because I found it, you know, because we're coming out with this live album. Yeah. I thought it'd be interesting to put it up there. Coke. You know, and then he passed away. So that's when we met him. That's the first time we really played, you know, on something that wasn't a jam. So, so he was in New York, uh, you said? He was in New York. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I knew there was the commercial, and that was how it came together. Yeah, and that's when, you know, like I said, we, we told the attorney, look, we need somebody to play. What do you recommend? He goes, well, Jeff is here. And me and Tim go, oh, yeah, let's have Jeff come down. Oh, so he wow. came down. He had the wah-wah going. Yeah. And, you know, and he just played great. And then from then on, it was like, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like later that year, we, we did a show at the Singer Bowl at the World's Fair site. Uh-huh. And it was a crazy combination of people. It was the Edwin Hawkins Singers, which had Oh Happy Day. Right. And ten, um, 10 years after with Alvin Lee, mm. the Jeff Beck Group and Vanilla Fudge headlining. Oh, you wow. Know? So when Jeff Beck Group went on, Led Zeppelin, who were hot, and we were touring with them the whole summer. They came up and jammed with the Jeff Beck group. I think Bonzo used my drums. I can't remember. And then after that show, Bonzo came up to me and said, here's Jeff Beck's phone number. He wants to play with you guys. So that was it. So that was the start of BBA that didn't happen for another two or three years. That's amazing. Yeah, and it seems like it was the last – period of Jeff with the slides and the was, you know, he was starting to explore. Yeah, I mean, this BBA Live record coming out shows Jeff at his, he's on fire along with me and Tim. We were just so much, we were on fire, all three of us, you know. But this is the last record you might hear Jeff playing rock, you know, as it was, playing slide and kick-ass rock, heavy rock. And there were some elements of this jazz rock in there, 
we had this song called Jizwiz, which I consider the bridge between BBA and Blow by Blow because it was it started with a song called Solid Lifter, which is an instrumental, and it, and Solid Lifter kept changing the chords, built up to this this song Jizwiz, and Jizwiz the verse of it was I think it was an 11, 13, 11 8 or thirteen eight, then it went to six to six eight, then it went to three four. It was all instrumental, you know. And then I had a drum solo in it. The freaking drum solo is nine minutes long, you know? Oh, wow. Freaking crazy. <laughs> but people were getting off on it. It was the 70s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to use a wah-wah on my snare drum. You can do that. Yeah, we can do that. And, <laughs> you know, it was awesome. And then th- that was the last tour we did in England. And Tim and Jeff had some sort of agreement. The band broke up. And then I stayed in England and worked with Jeff, which was to be blow by blow. You know, and then I also discovered another guy named Ray Gomez. I know the name. You know, guitar player, played with Stanley Clark, and he was a great yeah. player. And so I would rehearse with Jeff in the evenings. I'd rehearse with Ray Gomez and Rick Gretsch. Wow. In the afternoons, you know, just in case something happened. I needed something else, you know. Sure. And then sure. I brought Ray and, and Rick to uh, America. And after all that BBA, uh, all the, the blow-by-blow thing didn't happen. Yeah. And so it took me about a year, and then I moved to L.A., and that's when I ran into Rod and joined Rod. So oh, amazing. It was a really crazy time for me of uh, a lot of changes. You know? yeah, a lot of changes for you, a lot of changes for Jeff. You know, that, that was the beginning of full-time instrumental Jeff. Yep. But, you know, he was known for, he, he had instrumentals before. Yeah, he had Bex Bolero. Like Bex Bolero was Jeff's instrumental. Boogie. Jeff's Boogie was instrumental. So he, he always had a notion to, yeah, because he, you know, he hated singers. Yeah, but he flipped it around. He made a, you know, the instrumental thing yeah, became the prime thing. Was and, there, you know, that came from, I think it really came from when we were on tour in, like, 72. Uh-huh. I used to listen to Billy Cobham and Ma Vishnu in the car. Me and Jeff would be driving. You know, right. in a car, and I had the cassettes, and I listened to that, and, if, and he'd say, "Wow, what is this stuff?" You know, and and we got to know it really well, and that that's why Jizzwiz was born. Oh, you know, because wow. we listened to all this crazy stuff. Yeah, and then it continued with blow by blow. You could tell how that affected him. Yeah, oh yeah, it affected both of us because you know when we were rehearsing, we were doing stuff in nine eight for his, like Scatterbrain. I played on Scatterbrain. I played on. That ballad when it causes lovers, I, I can't remember the title. I played on the uh, the Beatles song and, and a couple other songs. You know what I mean? Yeah, she's a woman. And yeah. the scatterbrain was in nine eight. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I started with this nine eight thing, and and you know we we put this song together. And, but now I listen back to those tracks. I have a few of those tracks. Fucking drum sounds suck. You know, <laughs> I mean for me, yeah. you know, I mean I just came out of BBA. We had a good drum sound. You know, Cactus had a good drum sound. Right. You know, but this drum sound was all padded up, which I never really liked that. Yeah. You know, and the next albums I did with Rod Stewart, I was using Andy Johns. Oh, okay. And we developed this, like, drum sound, like, on Hot Legs, uh-huh. you know, and Born Loose, and You Were Insane, and, and uh, Attractive Female One. It was a big, fat drum sound, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and ever since then, I've learned to do that drum sound. I even had my own studio in, um, in Florida now. I just record drums and, and some vocals. I don't know how to do guitars or the yeah. bass, but I'm, I got the drum sound, the Andy drum sound, Andy John's drum sound happening in my own studio. You know? Nice, nice. Yeah. 
Okay, so right here, the conversation veered into details about Carmine's home studio, current projects he's working on, and so on and so forth. I refer you to his social media pages. He's active on Facebook, Carmine Apice, A-P-P-I-C-E, easy to find. Uh, We're going to keep the focus on Jeff because we've used up a lot of time already and we're not done yet. So I want to bring back Vernon with some deep thoughts about Jeff Beck. Our world... Mm-hmm. The guitar, the world of guitar, we're reeling. We're yeah. really reeling from it. Seriously. And, and, and I think because Jeff Beck had such a long career, his career spans the modern era of electric guitar. Yes. From 66, from the, the re, like the introduction of fuzz boxes and wah-wah pedals, you know, I mean, the, the era of electric guitar as a voice. Yeah. The earliest stuff. He's def- helping define it along with Jimmy. You know, I mean, and really, you know, after Les Paul, I mean, like the beginning of Stopboxes and whatnot, like that's really mm. the, the whole thing. Yeah. And because he's so extraordinary and so ubiquitous, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things is like we almost, I want to say we stopped hearing him, but he was just, he was just there mm-hmm. the whole time. We, none of us ever imagine a world without Jeff Beck in it. Right. You know, right. we were, we expected to have our minds blown whenever he would show up, which is yeah. what he would do. Because the other thing is that he's kept expanding his sonic palette. He kept expanding his approach. He was affected by things. He absorbed all this stuff. And we were beneficiaries. I mean, he was a singular voice. And you can connect. You listen to to Bex Bolero, and you take that all the way to where, you know, where were you? Mm -hmm. And it's the same dude. Yeah. And and that that's the part of it that's really extraordinary. This probably has happened to you a million times, and and me many times. When I meet somebody for the first time and I tell them what I do, oh, who's the greatest guitarist in the world? (laughs) Well, the first thing I do is, 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 can we narrow that down a little bit? Right. I said, I think you mean rock guitarists, right? I said, let's mm-hmm. talk rock guitarists. I said, I'll yeah. answer your question. I said, this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. I said, Hendrix number one. Mm-hmm. But Beck number two and really close. Mm-hmm. He said yeah. that he did not feel he was appreciated in England. He thought he was appreciated more here and he really liked that. He loved to come to America because he really had these fans that stayed with him and really appreciated him. The point of that. I don't think Jeff really realized how much people revered him. And that's what's such a bummer. I think he was so humble and so sort of introverted. And I mean, obviously these people all his friends. They weren't, they weren't, you know, he'd tell me a story and he'd be like, Oh, Paul and Linda, you know, we right. were at their house. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> talking about Paul McCartney. you know what I mean? But it wasn't like he was trying to, these are yeah. just people he, he was in the same circle with. It wasn't like, you know, it was a big deal to him. Um, and to see to see how everybody's calling him, you know, the greatest guitarist and all this stuff. I mean, not that we all don't believe that, but it's just it's pretty amazing. He just kept taking the guitar. He, he nobody handled the tremolo arm like mm-hmm. Jeff Beck. Yeah. I'm, uh, anybody that you hear that's nice with it, Jeff was there before them. Yeah. Well, I, I said in my article he he replaced the slide he stopped he made the tremolo bar the new slide (laughs) you know you said the most when i talked to you 
yeah. when we had the, that conversation, you said yeah. something that really resonated with me. You said, you know, Jeff Beck was a guitar head of state. Yeah, exactly. Man. And yeah. I and I think that's exactly what it's. It, we've lost a, an eminence. Yes. And an eminence has left us. Yeah. And and that's what we're grappling with yeah. right now, and will be, and will be from here on out. Vernon Reed with the last word. Mic drop moment, if there ever was one. My mic is mounted and wired. I can't really drop it. I'm just going to tap it. There. I am beyond grateful to Vernon, the Carmine apiece here on Moods and Modes, Dave Rubin, and Melissa Dragic. Thank you, Dave, for making that connection. And most of all, thank you to Jeff Beck for all he gave the world. And we're not done paying tribute. I imagine we'll be talking about Jeff for years to come and his music and his great example remains. Thank you, Jeff. Rest in peace. I would be remiss not to mention the other great loss in music that followed barely a week later, like a one-two punch. David Crosby, Peaceful Journey, Cros. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Matt Dwyer. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas. Original music within by Alex Skolnick. Joined here at the end by Matt Zabrowski and Nathan Peck and artwork. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we appreciate all your support, whether that's simply telling friends about the podcast, sharing it on social media, writing us a review is great. And of course, you can always support us directly at Patreon. And uh, thank you for being patient with the infrequency between episodes. It's tough. If you know it about my schedule, you know why. And this episode was like multiple episodes in one with all the interviews and everything. The next few are already in the works, so you'll be seeing those soon. Thank you once again. Take care and be safe. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Osiris. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.